What's up, guys? Brian Wilson here, History Unraveled, bringing you our second episode for this show on the Life Unraveled podcast. Uh, so a lot of these history talks, um, I've actually got uh, some lined up and scheduled right now with guests, but a lot of these history talks I just kind of do solo in my office, which is uh, it's very interesting. It's uh, definitely um, something easy to procrastinate uh, or... Like oftentimes I'll sit here and obsess and dwell about the talks I'm going to give and uh, what I'm going to cover and then are my notes good and all right, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to be sure I have all the right pictures to edit in and, and this and that, but this comes with the territory. Anytime you create, um, it's so easy to be critical. Um, anytime I find myself, uh, like misspeaking in classes I teach or anything like that. It's, uh, it's something that's also easy to be very critical about, uh, stuff will keep you up at night. So, uh, but <clears throat> what I'm going to be talking to you about today is sort of another geography sort of based talk, right? So the first episode we did, uh, was over Mesopotamian geography. Okay. And, um, sort of the conditions of that area and you know the river valley of the Tigris and Euphrates and how it influenced the cultures there. I'm going to do several more talks on Mesopotamia uh, as well as uh, Egypt. So today we're talking about Egypt and then uh, geography and the unique conditions of the Nile River Valley. Okay so uh, I feel like this is foundational stuff. These are things that I really hammer on when I'm teaching uh, courses at, uh, at the college I work at that I think really helps people develop a foundation to build all of these other cultural uh, delineations on. So you talk about a lot of different cultures. Uh, when you talk about the ancient world, well, most of them existed in the same area. Okay, so let's talk about the Nile and the River Valley and the Egyptians. So <clears throat> Nile River Valley is located on the African continent, and it is located right where Africa and Asia meet, right? Uh, right there next to the Sinai Peninsula. So ancient Egypt is profoundly influenced by this river valley, okay? Uh, Egypt is a unique product of the many diverse geographic features of this river valley. Uh, the development of Egyptian civilization occurs due to several attractive uh, settling factors that exist in this Nile River Valley. Let's go over some of those. Uh, for example, uh, the River Valley uh, contains a healthy, dry climate. It's not an overwhelming presence of fatal malaria like we see in Mesopotamia with uh, what we referred to as Babylonian swamp fever. Uh, there's about 1.5 inches of annual rainfall in the valley. It's a little, a uh, little more winter rainfall that occurs in the delta, and we'll kind of go over that when I talk to you about the delta. Uh, in the Nile River Valley, the wind blew upstream. This is unique and key to uh, the Egyptians flourishing uh, like they did. This allowed merchants to carry their goods downstream, uh, and with the use of a sail, they could be blown back upstream. It is believed that these conditions are actually uh, what possibly allowed the Egyptians to invent the sail and sailboats. This is what is uh, a mainstream school of thought. So 
uh, doesn't mean that the sale had not previously been discovered by another uninfluenced culture somewhere else earlier at the same time. Uh, there's a lot of debate on that as well. So, um, but it's these conditions that just, they encourage a lot of trade and shipping throughout the Nile River Valley, okay? Uh, the borders of Egypt also um, are something important for us to talk about. Uh, they offer some natural protection from outside invasion. This is kind of a key thing that when we look at some of the different borders and how Egypt's situated and the history of when people do invade, we see how uh, important the sort of frontiers and the uh, borders of Egypt and where the Egyptians are settled are to those people. So the Mediterranean and Red Seas both offer natural protections for the Egyptians. Um, Egypt also borders uh, Libya to the west, uh, the Gaza Strip, Israel to the northeast, and Sudan to the south. Uh, the smaller eastern desert is located between the Nile and the Red Sea. Again, the Red Sea is just there to the east. And the much larger western desert, which is part of the Sahara Desert, the largest desert in the world, um, just covers most of western Africa. Um, and these two deserts definitely offer what I was just mentioning a second ago, a lot of protection from outside invasion for the Egyptians. This definitely leads to some optimism, another reoccurring theme. We see the Mesopotamians are highly pessimistic in their literature and their mythology. The Egyptians much more optimistic about the afterlife. And again, that's due to the conditions of the Nile Valley. So the desert lands, uh, the Egyptians referred to as the red land. Okay, so that's uh, what they referred to. It's the reference to the uh, sands of the desert uh, with the red land. So it's an interesting delineation. We'll talk about the black land here in a second, which is, uh, is a contrast to the red land. So let's get into discussing uh, the actual Nile River. Okay, so um, the, the famed uh, historian Herodotus, father of history, he refers to Egypt as the gift of the Nile. His grandfather, Hecatius, I believe is how you say his name, also referred to Egypt as the gift of the Nile. So um, we believe that those are the first two people to probably coin that term. But that's a, sort of a great uh, way to reference um, the Egyptians' relationship and how they viewed themselves and the Nile River and their position in that river valley enjoyed a lot of peace and prosperity for a long time in the Nile River Valley. The Nile travels through nine different countries. It spans the entire country of Egypt. The river itself contains no bridges crossing it. And without the Nile flowing through the middle of Egypt, um, Egypt would be completely desert, mostly a barren wasteland. Only about 5% of Egypt is habitable with the Nile there. So it's mostly desert. There are a few scattered oases throughout the uh, valley. This is uh, areas where there's a sort of a permanent water supply, groupings of trees, um, sometimes towns which are located in the middle of the desert. The Nile is the longest river in the world at over 4,100 miles in length. It rises in the highlands of eastern Africa and flows from north to south. 
as we mentioned, the wind blows upstream, carries merchants downstream by the current. Um, that is the a very unique situation which allows for a lot of flourishing of trade and commerce throughout the river valley. Egyptians are transporting crops, uh, troops, consumer and trade goods, uh, heavy objects like stones, um, woods uh, for uh, lumber and, and things like that. Uh, and it's, it's very interesting that uh, if you study the Nile, you see a lot of historians referring to it as sort of an ancient highway. The Nile River provides uh, gentle, regular, and predictable flooding every September. Again, this is in contrast to violent, unpredictable flooding in Mesopotamia, which would uh, be a three-month shot, and you wouldn't be able to really predict when it was going to come. It was going to come. It's very hard on the uh, Sumerians and the Akkadians and cultures that existed there. <clears throat> These floods would leave uh, deposits of fertile soil, which allowed the Egyptians to adopt agriculture. This fertile soil was deposited on the Nile floodplain, right? We talked about floodplains in our Mesopotamian podcast. Uh, this is just an area along the banks of the Nile, which the Egyptians would call Kemet. This meant the black land. That was a direct reference to the uh, fertile soils and silt that um, the Nile would deposit on the Nile floodplains. The black land specifically refers to this fertile land along the banks of the Nile where the Egyptians would grow their crops. And the black land varies in width from about 1 to 14 miles wide. There were times when flooding was not as much as the Egyptians expected or needed. Uh, this was referred to as low Nile. And there's also times where um, Low Nile was, uh, was going on, and this, we see that this is extremely hard on the agriculture and the livestock there in Egypt. There are also times of excessive flooding by the Nile. So just, um, just because most of the time it floods gentle and regular and predictable, there are times when, uh, the Egyptians referred to as the time of great waters, uh, which would be a time when there would be excessive flooding, no advance notice, and it would produce many social problems for the Egyptians. The Nile contains many tributaries. Uh, these are small streams that join a bigger stream, just to uh, keep it simple. The two main tributaries uh, are known as the Blue Nile and the White Nile. Uh, the Blue Nile is um, where the Atbara River uh, begins. Uh, this begins on the plateau of Ethiopia, and again, it's called the Blue Nile. The White Nile is the longer of the two main tributaries and rises in Central Africa. Unlike the Tigris and Euphrates in Mesopotamia, the characteristics of the Nile and uh, the river valley and how the river is uh, functioning for the Egyptians all make the Egyptian people very optimistic. This geography of this area and the Nile River and its fertile soil, they all leave a stamp on ancient Egypt. And, and this is where, again, you see them, uh, you know, the Nile sort of acting as an ancient highway, uniting two separate and distinct parts of the valley, okay? So this will be a sort of a geographic delineation that we uh, cover. These two separate locations are known as Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. 
the Egyptians thought about things as being either up or down the Nile. And that's why we see this delineation. A lot of times my students get confused because they'll see lower Egypt and it's at the top of the map. Um, and then upper Egypt's the bottom of the map. So it's kind of confusing for some people. Uh, but let's talk about Lower Egypt first, right? This is an uh, area that contains what we refer to as the Nile Delta, all right? The Delta is a very damp area. It's located where the Nile and the Mediterranean Sea merge. Lower Egypt um, and the Delta area specifically um, are where we see a lot of towns. Um, the Delta covers about 4,250 square miles of land, and it also contains uh, a lot of moist and extremely fertile soil, but it's also a very swampy area. The Delta is about 100 miles long and about 150 miles wide. Nile Delta had different conditions than the rest of the valley. It received regular winter rainfall. It was also really marshy. And the delta also contained some enemies of the Egyptians, such as the cobra. It's a deadly snake which could eat small animals or it could kill people. Same thing goes for the crocodile and even uh, hippopotamus or hippopotami would be the plural. Uh, they dominated the delta region. They caused problems for the Egyptian. They would often eat crops. Um, they would even eat Egyptians. Uh, they could eat an entire bale of hay in one bite. Uh, speaking of eating Egyptians, Menes, the first pharaoh of the Old Kingdom, um, he was eaten alive by hippopotamus at the age of 82. Oh, um, Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt both have symbols, and we see this um, as probably a reference to what the Egyptians see in the area, but the symbol of Lower Egypt becomes the cobra. Planning on doing a discussion on uh, pre-dynastic Egypt, kind of is the next talk in my Egypt series. And um, when I discuss that, I will kind of go into the significance of the symbols associated with Upper and Lower Egypt. Symbols are fascinating sort of thing to study um, in history and psychology. There are a lot of symbols in the ancient world, and they're, they're fascinating to look into. Uh, many cities develop in the Delta area and in Lower Egypt. Uh, some particular cities we'll reference would be uh, Alexandria. This is actually the Greek capital. It is um, on the map there to the uh, west portion of the Delta. Avaris, this is the capital of the Hyksos. This is a cultural group that invades during the Second Intermediate Period. Um, there's also Memphis and Pelusium. Um, Cairo, if I didn't mention that. Uh, Memphis serves as the capital city of the Old Kingdom, and it's uh, located close to Cairo there. Uh, in Upper Egypt, this area is very dry and is located in the uppermost portion of the Nile River Valley. One particular area um, that sort of um, is helpful to the Egyptians is sort of a border, is something called the First Cataract. This is a, ser a series of violent rapids, waterfalls that you encounter when traveling upstream. The First Cataract is close uh, to the upper Egypt town of Aswan. 
This area was uh, easy for the Egyptians to defend and fortify due to a narrow channel, which was found here, uh, along with the violent rapids and the waterfalls. And it was just, it was difficult if you were trying to pass the first cataract and they didn't want you to. Um, the distance from Aswan and uh, to the entrance of the Nile Delta is around 660 miles. So um, another major city to reference uh, other than Aswan in Upper Egypt, the New Kingdom capital of Thebes is located in Upper Egypt. Sort of last thing I want to mention for um, this particular topic that sort of relates to all the the geography, and I'll probably re-reference this in my next talk. I plan on talking about architecture and agriculture and culture and pre-dynastic government and some things like that. But um, at some point, the Egyptians started using and developed a solar calendar. Okay, this is uh, unique because uh, most of the other civilizations in the ancient world used a lunar calendar. But the Egyptians used the solar calendar, and the solar, cal the solar calendar for them is 365-day year, but they had three seasons that they observed. I'm going to kind of go over those. Uh, the first season was the season of inundation. This was a time when the river would flood, and this occurred between July and November. Then there's the season of parrot which is the season of planting and growing for the Egyptians. And then there's the season of Shamu. This occurred in early spring throughout July. And this was a time when harvesting crops was the major activity. This was also a season when drought would eventually crack the surface of the soil. So it was important, um, an important season to, uh, uh, that could, you know, it could tip either way. And this is a lot of times when we see um, them having issues uh, when, there's low Nile or, or things like that when there's irregular weather. So these three seasons were dependable and regular for the most part, though. Um, the regular flooding, the fertile soil, food from fishing in the river, these are all, again, reasons that the Egyptian people are very optimistic people. So uh, that kind of wraps up this talk, guys. Um, thanks for listening. I uh, want to... Um, kind of give a shout out, uh, show some gratitude. I love being able to talk about these things. Um, and I was fortunate enough to take a seminar on ancient Egypt with a professor named David Krieger. And um, I still have all my notes and my tests and recordings. And it is so enjoyable to get to um, go back over that information. It's and. Um, sort of channel, you know, what it was like being there and redirect that information into the courses I'm teaching now and onto my podcast and so on. So uh, again, uh, you know, view this podcast and the one we did over Mesopotamia is sort of background information. It is, if you want to listen to some other talks I'm going to put out about these major cultural groups, the Sumerians, the Akkadians, the Amorites, the Assyrians, the Hebrews, the, the Egyptians, and so on, you got to understand the neighborhood that we're living in, okay? This is the area that I'm going to be talking about on a lot of my early podcasts. Uh, some other things to look for um, are I am um, working on some French Revolution content and plan on doing a discussion over the Bourbon dynasty. This is the people, these are the people in power at the onset of the French Revolution. Um, I got to take Professor Krieger for that course as well. Looking forward to um, 
wrapping that up and then I'm working on a much larger podcasting project in which I'm trying to integrate guest and solo talks uh, over 1968. I'm going to do a book review. I have a couple of guests. I've got been playing this for quite some time. It's been over 50 years. Uh, 50, we're in the 51st year now uh, since uh, 1968 and just so much incredible and crazy stuff happened in 1968 uh, in the United States and worldwide. So that's kind of some forecasting for History Unraveled. Uh, please subscribe to our channel um, if you would like to um, hear me give any specific talks uh, in the in the neighborhood of history. You can uh, comment on a video, or you could also uh, even shoot me an email. Um, you can find my uh, credentials. Just sort of Google Brian Wilson email. I'm not the Beach Boy. Um, although I was called that in junior high school by my football coaches. So that's that, guys. Uh, thank you again for listening. Subscribe to the channel, and we'll talk to you next time.